Well, back in the book of Hebrews, covering chapter 1, verses 1, all the way through 14. We've covered verses 1 through 3 last week, but it, it, uh, it, it flows. So we're going to specifically cover verses 4 through 14 today. I was trying to think of a good way to anchor the challenges that these Hebrew believers were having at the time. Sometimes a gap of 2,000 years uh, seems too great to kind of understand the original audience. But we need to understand the original audience. In fact, when you're preparing a sermon, when you're studying it, you do what's called exegesis. And the first question you have to ask is, what did it mean to them then? What did it mean to them then? Before I ask what it means for me now, I have to round the basis. I have to say, what does it mean to them then? And then what is the theological understanding? We have to sort of run things through the cross. How does this fit with the overall redemptive narrative in Scripture? That God is advancing His kingdom. He is redeeming His creation through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, and only then, can we ask, well, what does it mean for us now? But when we make that connection correctly, then we don't have a man-centered Scripture. We have a Christ-centered centered, life-giving gospel. So, when we do all that, we try to say, okay, well then how, how do I anchor the need? How do I understand what went on with them then? And something came to mind years ago when I used to be able to ride a motorcycle, no, no complaining in that statement, but when I used to be able to ride, I would ride into the country down and around Houston. And I remember stopping at the Old Klein Cemetery. The Old Klein Cemetery was from a German settlement in the early 1800s, and you would walk among these old graves, and you would see long inscriptions in German with lots and lots of Scripture. And it was really interesting. They were devout believers, German Lutherans, and almost every tombstone had a Bible verse until about 1950. And over time, you see the language change from German to English, and you see the scriptures get smaller and then go away. And then around 1950 forward, you see something interesting. You see a lot of talk about angels. Things like, um, here lies the body of little Jimmy, who is now an angel in heaven. Lots of references to um, children who are now angels, the angels doing this or that or the other, people becoming angels. And, and frankly, the drift from Scripture invited and embraced erroneous teaching regarded, regarding created beings, angels. What had happened ended up resulting in something that was not only anti-scriptural, but a fascination with something that biblically is not healthy. And that is what we have with the original audience. These Jewish believers had drifted a bit. Now, the draw was from their own Jewish community. They had come out of Judaism, and the people they knew, the people they grew up with, were like saying, come back. 
First century Judaism was replete with a morbid fascination about angels. And what could be going on here, and I think this may be it, is that there is a temptation that rather than reject Christ completely, rather than punt Him as the Messiah completely, if they would just quit talking about Him as the Son of God, everything would be fine. And within Judaism, there was a place to talk about the power of angels. Hey, maybe this Jesus fellow, well, surely he was more than a man, but maybe he was just a really, really powerful angel. Maybe he was an archangel. I think that's a real possibility of what may be going on. At the very least, here's what we know is going on. Judaism had a a huge focus on angels. And in fact, they believed that the law was delivered by angels. There's a verse in Galatians that kind of alludes to something like that, but they had extrapolated it into this whole doctrine. And the author, in order to get his people here to understand that Jesus is the one true Son of God, the mediator of a better covenant, he has got to set their perception correctly. That's a long introduction, but it will help lay it, lay the groundwork for what we're about to talk about in order for them to worship Christ and worship Christ alone, he has got to explain to them where angels fit and how far superior our Lord Jesus Christ is. That makes sense? Now, I'm going to expect a little feedback today here because unlike a regular expositional sermon, the first half of this is going to be systematic theology. So hopefully everyone's had their coffee they got a pen in hand, and they're ready to be attentive. We're going to make it fun, but I need to know you're still alive, okay? Uh, I talked with two pastor friends of mine, and I said, I feel like I need to explain more about who angels are, but I do not want to give a lecture. And they're like, yeah, you don't have to, but when was the last time you talked about angels? I said, probably 14 years ago. You probably need to talk about angels a little bit. So pray with me, and we'll look at this together. Gracious Father, we come before you as a body of believers, and Lord, we are eager to learn. We are eager to hear from you in your word, so that it might produce in us not merely knowledge, but reverence and worship for the one true God. Father, we may not be in danger of... uh, dethroning Christ in our minds or reducing him in rank to the level of angels. But Lord, we are in danger of the peer pressure out there. The peer pressure which minimizes the person and work of Jesus Christ. The peer pressure which will cause us to be ashamed of the gospel, ashamed of the name. Father, the practical parallels in this passage are huge for us. May we mind the depths today, and may you reveal them to us, so that we may be more faithful followers of our Lord Jesus Christ. We may be more faithful servants and seed sowers in evangelism. And Father, we may give Him all the glory and the honor that is due him, and may nothing, nothing be even a distant second in our hearts. 
Father, may the affection of our hearts grow this morning as we learn about the majesty of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is in His name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. All right. Well, as I mentioned, we're going to spend about 20 minutes on angelology. Take an entire seminary course and squeeze it into 10 minutes here. And we'll have a good time. All right. If you're taking notes, we're going to walk through four points. One, angels, who they are and what they do. You just kind of want to get it out there. What are some misconceptions we have? What does the Bible tell us? And why do we need to understand that? Two, we have three descriptions of Christ in comparison to the angels from the text, from 4 through 14. One, angels are staff, but Jesus bears the family name. I'll repeat these as we go through them. Angels are servants, but Jesus is the crown prince. And finally, angels are created, but Jesus is the ruling creator. Let's talk about angels, who they are and what they do. Get this, angels are mentioned 273 times in the Old Testament and 165 times in the New Testament. And I'll promise you, every single one of us has misconceptions about these created beings. So it's important for us to understand understand who they are and what role they play in God's plan of redemption. So let's start with the question, where do they come from? Psalm 148.2 answers that. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all stars of light. Praise Him, highest heavens and the waters that are above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded, and they were created. Right off the bat, I know a huge distinction between our triune God and everything else that was created. I remember taking a class in seminary, and the professor said something that just blew my mind. He said, do you realize even our triune God limited Himself in creation? Before creation, all was God, and yet He created so that He might put on display His attributes, which would otherwise never be known, and He might be worshipped. You know, just a side note here, one reason I'm so excited about going through this book is that I think we as a congregation need to worship better more deeply. I'm not talking about singing better or programming better. I'm talking about the depth at which we need to understand our triune God. And the more we understand our Lord Jesus Christ, the more our cup will overflow and the praise that will come out of our mouth, the boldness in evangelism, the ministry, the eagerness with which we will do the one another's. It is the warp and wolf of who we are. We have been saved not only for eternity, but for the here and now. And what fuels our lives, what fuels our ministry is this. Who is our God? Who is our God? And so we start out with the question about angels. What are angels? They're not God. It's kind of that simple. 
You passed your first test, right? We also know that their number is fixed. Apparently this number is huge, as the words to describe them are myriads upon myriads. They do not marry nor reproduce. Matthew 22 tells us that when he's answering the Sadducees. You are mistaken, not understanding the Scriptures nor the power of God, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. The word itself means messenger. Angel means messenger. Certainly the most famous messenger in Scripture was Gabriel, right? Who brought the news of the Christ child. 1 Peter 1.12 says that they desire to look into God's saving work. They rejoice when men and women are converted, when people come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's interesting to think about, isn't it? They like to look onto God's majestic saving work, whereby He draws people, enlightens them, regenerates them, and uses His Word and the power of the Holy Spirit to redeem mankind and adopt them as sons and daughters of the King. And can you imagine the constant celebration going on in heaven? Did you hear? So-and-so believed. Isn't it amazing the household of so-and-so has just come to Christ? And they're excited about this. So it's not like they're robots. They're spirit beings. Right now, they're in a higher position than man. Psalm 8, 8, 4 says, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. In Scripture, we see them appearing in different forms, but when they appear in a human-like form, they're always masculine creatures. They're incredibly powerful, and yet they are not God and do not uh, have His attributes. They are not omniscient. They're not all-knowing. They're not omnipotent. They're not all-powerful. And they're not omnipresent. They cannot be at more, uh, at all, everywhere at once. They're spatially limited. Let's turn to Daniel 10 and kind of get a feeling for what angels are like with regards to power and duty. Daniel chapter 10, I want to read just a little bit because I want to, I want to try to take this misconception we have of uh, uh, fat little naked babies and wings and, 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 and kind of correct it a little bit, if I might. For those of you who really like Raphael, I apologize, but he's wrong. Daniel chapter 10, starting in verse 10. This is amazing. Now, a little, a little interpretation here. When you see the word princes, when you see the word kings here, this is not talking about uh, human princes or human kings. It's talking about angelic powers. Daniel chapter 10, verse 10. Suddenly... A hand touched me, which made me tremble on my knees and on the palms of my hands. And he said to me, O Daniel, greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. 
while he was speaking this word to me, I stood trembling. Then he said to me, verse 12, Do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come because of your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me twenty-one days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left here alone with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision refers to many days yet to come. Skip down to verse 18. Then again, the one having the likeness of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man, greatly beloved, fear not. Peace be to you. Be strong. Yes, be strong. So when he spoke to me, I was strengthened. And said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? Now I must return to fight the prince of Persia. And when I have gone forth, indeed the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is noted in the scripture of truth. No one upholds, these, no one upholds me against these except Michael your prince. Michael the what? Archangel. Michael seems to be associated with the protection of God's people, Israel. And so we, we have this, this resetting, this, this perspective shift with regards to angelic beings. They're not cute, they're not feminine, they're not fat, chubby, they're not on one shoulder or another one. And yet we see they're very real, very powerful, much more powerful than men right now. And there's a war, a war with, we might say, good angels. The Bible calls them elect angels or chosen angels and evil demons, fallen angels. There is a spiritual battle going on. It's not one of flesh and blood. But it is one, as Ephesians 1.21 says, far above all principality and power and might and dominion. Those are rabbinic orders. That's an understanding that there are different levels of angels and power and battles. You know from Sunday school, Elisha prayed that his servant would see and his servant saw that against the king of Aram, the army that he sent, that there were thousands of angels there to protect him and chariots of fire. You know that after the northern kingdom fell, that uh, Sennacherib made his way and encircled Jerusalem and tried to destroy the southern kingdom. And the angel laid waste to 185,000. We'll see them in the tribulation administering God's wrath with seals, bowls, and trumpets. There's no question that they are incredibly powerful. And yet they have a guardian function too. We've seen that they have a protective function, but they, there's a guardian function. Turn back to uh, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 14. It says, Are they not all ministering spirits? 
sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. This sounds a little bit familiar. Christ says in Matthew 18, 10, Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. So yes, there's a sense in which there are guardian angels, but there's, there's no scriptural evidence that each person has a guardian angel. The key there is verse 14. They are created ministering spirits that do the work of our triune God when it comes to salvation. They don't provide salvation. They don't secure salvation. But they minister to those who will receive salvation and protect. You know, I love biographies. There's a great one I would commend to you um, by John Patton who is a missionary to the New Hebrides Islands in the South Pacific. It was a cannibalistic set of islands. And one night he describes hostile natives that had surrounded the mission station. And their plan was to burn them out and then kill them. John and his wife prayed the entire night, and they were terrorized by these natives, and yet they never attacked. The next morning, they woke to find that they had all left. Well, a year later, the chief who was attacking them that night became a believer. And John had a conversation with him, and he said, What happened? Why didn't you attack us? Why didn't you kill us? And to the chief's surprise, he said, Well, who were all those men guarding the station? There were large men with drawn swords and shining garments. There's no way we could have attacked you. Of course, John knew that no one was there, no human, certainly, but that the Lord had protected him. Psalm 34, 7, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Is your picture starting to change a little bit? Created beings, for the time being, a little bit higher than man, very powerful, and yet not gods in any stretch of the imagination, not omniscient, not omnipotent. They often appear in human form, large, masculine-looking. But then there's other types mentioned in the Old Testament. One is called a seraphim, and they seem to be involved in the worship of God. Let me read to you out of Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The author is, is trying to describe 
what these angelic beings look like, and, and all he can do is, is, is kind of just get close with that that he knows, wings. What he does know is they, they seem to be involved in a worship, maybe almost a priestly function. And if you've heard of seraphim, well, then there's also cherubim. That's another type. You may recognize that from Genesis 3. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Ezekiel also tries to describe these kind of creatures, these cherubim. And, and, and again, they're so otherworldly, that they're so fantastic that he just does his best with descriptions. The likeness of a man. Four faces, four wings, straight legs, hooves. It's like he's struggling, and yet they're so powerful and so majestic, and these are near the throne of God, the presence of God. They guard the holiness of God. You'll recognize them if you've ever seen a picture of the Ark of the Covenant. The lid of the Ark of the Covenant is called the mercy seat. And what do you see on the top with their wings touching? Come on, you've seen Indiana Jones, right? Okay? Those are cherubim, okay? Those are cherubim. By the way, which one of these angels do you suppose Satan was before the fall? It was a cherubim. One was described, but now four take his place. His name was Lucifer, and he was near to God. Guarded the holiness of God. And yet, as a result of, I want to be like God, he fell, and pride was his fall. When I say Lucifer, Satan, you probably think of a fellow in a red suit with a trident, tail, cloven hooves. It was actually developed by the medieval church. It was meant to be a caricature. It was meant to help Christians poke fun at Satan because they thought that that was his greatest weakness, pride. So insults would give them power over him. Bad angelology, okay? There's a lot more we could discuss. Here's what we do know. Angels are not a parallel mankind. There is no plan of redemption. A third followed Satan in the rebellion, and apparently that was only possible once. Though they have mind, intellect, and will, and they have a free agency, and they chose to leave, a third of them, yet 1 Timothy 5 refers to the ones who stayed as chosen, as elect. Not chosen out of a sinful nature because they were holy, and God is not the author of evil. What we do know is that they were created for worship, and some rebelled, and that the lake of fire was originally made for Satan and his angels. The purpose of all this, the purpose of this systematic theology, well, I'll quote Dickinson. He says, Christians need perspective, lest we belittle the enemies of righteousness, or lest we give them more than their due. Okay? Look, we've all mocked the, the, the TBN types, right? Rebuking Satan and, and doing all these things and, and talking about like how we have all this power over the angelic realm. Okay? 
It's not only wrong, but it's dangerous. But can we be equally as wrong over here? If I was to ask you to raise your hands, when was the last time any of us ever thought about the demonic realm, demonic activity, how the Lord uses angels as ministering spirits? Look, Satan doesn't need to show up in the United States. Why? Because he already thinks he's a figment of our imagination. And so it's important we have a proper perspective, not to exalt them too high, but, but neither to not consider them at all. I trust right now everyone's brain is hurting a little bit. So take a deep breath. And let's dive into the text. Understanding all that will help us understand what the author is doing here. The author is not going to correct their thinking by denigrating angels. Not at all. He's going to do it by exalting Christ. So, number one, angels are, or number two, angels are staff, but Jesus bears the family name. From verses 4 through 14, he's going to use seven Old Testament quotations. Five are going to come out of the Psalms. And what we're going to do is almost like you would do it in your quiet time. We're going to point out some things here so that we can understand what he is saying. And the reason I, I orchestrated it this way was I want us to see the correct comparison. Angels are staff, but Jesus bears the family name. Okay, that's a picture we can imagine. Imagine, you know, a, a large, a large uh, house, an estate house in Europe. You've watched Downton Abbey or something like that. You realize the difference between those who bear the family name, those who wear the crest, as we talked about last week, and those who are staff. There's the upstairs, there's the downstairs. There's a vast difference. Why? It's based upon relationship. Look at verse 4. Having become much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you, and again I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. More excellent name, my son, I have begotten thee, relationship. Be a father, be a son. This is what I want us doing in our quiet times. I want you to take your Bibles and I want you to look for patterns. The author is drawing upon Old Testament texts here, Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7. And he's doing it to make a point. You guys say you want to go back to Judaism? You say you miss your Jewish community? You say you miss the Old Covenant? Let's talk about the Old Covenant. Let's talk about Psalm 2. What does Psalm 2 say? Let's talk about 2 Samuel 7. What does it say about who Jesus is and who the angels are? Why would you ever want to worship the created when you can worship the creator? Why would you ever want the old covenant delivered by angels that would not save when the new covenant does? Amen? This is the warp and the woof of what he's trying to teach us here. And you're meant to feel the horsepower. He's not using his own arguments to convince us. He's pulling out the nitroglycerin of the Old Testament. Scripture. Even verse 14, which is the summary. Ministering spirits. That, that ministering is the adjective for the word servant. 
So in effect, the author is saying, you're tempted to go back to Judaism, or you're tempted to reduce the name, the personhood, the work of Christ. Why? Why would you want to do that? Do you not know the Old Testament? Do you not know what it says about the Messiah? You see, what he's drawing upon is messianic texts. Things that for centuries the Jews used to look for the Messiah. Every good Jew knows Psalm 2. Every good Jew. And he knows that that's a messianic text. And what does it say? You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Effectively, you're having a hard time swallowing the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Why? Even the Hebrew Scriptures talk about how He is the Son of God. You're like, wow, that, all that's there? And more and more. When Paul is on his first missionary journey, he walks into the synagogue. And remember, he always goes to the Jew first and then to the Greek. He goes into the synagogue and he preaches from the Hebrew Scriptures. Guess what he says? This is from Acts 13. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children and that he raised up Jesus. It is also written in the second psalm. He actually says that. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Kent Hughes says it so well. He says, son is Jesus' eternal name that was given exalted declaration in his resurrection and exaltation. No angel ever did that. Paul hits it again in Romans 1.4, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. It's like this. Not only was this predicted in Psalms, but you guys know what happened. Not only is Jesus the Son of God, and always has been the Son of God, but He was declared the Son of God because God rose Him from the dead. We don't believe in a dead Savior. Now tell me again how angels are to compare to this. Tell me again why you would want to reduce Jesus to the level of a, a spirit being, a created angel. Why? Let's take a step back. Why? Do you remember? It's peer pressure. Peer pressure. Hey, you know what? Hiram, you and I have known each other for years. We're friends. I know you're following this Jesus guy, okay? I'm not buying it. But if you'll just turn the volume down a little bit, we can still be friends and you can still hang out with us. Quit talking about him as being God. And he's tempted. Why? Because he doesn't get invited to the birthday parties anymore. He doesn't get to hang out with his buddies anymore. He can't shop at the same places he's always shopped at because they don't want him there. He's no longer part of the synagogue. Are you feeling it? So effectively, the pressure is on these people to throw Jesus under the bus to make their lives easier. That will preach, right? Because we're all tempted to do the same. You can look up 2 Samuel 7 when you have a chance, but basically this is the Davidic covenant. It talks about how uh, 
Solomon will be the fulfillment of that, and we know Solomon wasn't. It was a messianic text. Angels can't be sons of the Father. Jesus bears the family name. Angels are staff. They're powerful staff, but they're staff. By the way, what staff messenger delivered the good news that the Son of God had arrived? The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. And he will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. That just gives me chills. All right, let's look at the next one. Angels are servants, but Jesus... Jesus is the crown prince. Verse 6. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world and lets all the angels of God worship him. And of the angel he says, angels he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire? But of the sun he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. You say, well, how how does all that fit? Well, the author takes the family name concept and turns it up a notch. Okay? So, family name. Now, this time, he's going to say, and now... Let's look at his title. Let's look at his rank, if you will. Verse 6, we see angels actually worship him. In verse 8, we see words like throne, scepter, scepter of his kingdom. Verse 9, we see, we see authority and power, righteousness and lawlessness. That talks about being a, a righteous king as judge. And it talks about how he is anointed. Remember the word Messiah, Amashiah, is anointed one, king. And all this is said in contrast to verse 7, which talks about angels being servants. Again, he pulls from a well-known messianic text, this time from the law. But just think about that concept for a moment. They're tempted to either continue to drift towards some sort of angel worship. They're, they're tempted to maybe lower Christ to the level of an angel. And yet the author says, but even angels worship Jesus. How much more should we? If angels are so high and so powerful, and you revere them so much, yet they actually bow the knee to Jesus, the Son of God, how much more should we? And if you don't believe that, have you forgotten the Christmas story again? What were the angels doing after they made the announcement to the shepherds? Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom He is pleased. Can you imagine what that choir must have sounded like? That's worship. Let's talk about that peer pressure for a moment. Let's, let's try to bring it into 
the modern day. What they were experiencing was the offensiveness of Jesus Christ. You know what I'm saying? The people they knew, the people from their past, were offended that they held Jesus Christ as Lord. Remember, that's the first creed. Jesus is Lord. So if they could just turn down the volume, as I mentioned, if you could quit referring to Him as God, then it wouldn't be so offensive. Now let's parallel that with today. What peer pressure are you feeling with regards to, I don't want to even say your faith because it sounds so generic, what peer pressure are you feeling with exalting the name of your Savior, Jesus Christ? The name of your Lord Jesus Christ. Probably a fair amount. You could talk about God all day long in the workplace, right? What happens when you say Jesus? People start to get uncomfortable. What happens when you say Jesus is the only way? Oh, now they start to get really uncomfortable. We're not even talking about paganism here. Within even, you know, Christendom, broader Christendom. You start to talk about the exclusivity of Christ you got a problem on your hands, right? You think maybe things would get a little bit easier if you, if you said something like, well, I believe Jesus is the way, but certainly God will accept other ways if, if someone is sincere. Whoo, now the pressure's off, right? You feel it? Or maybe you should just quit talking about the lordship of Christ and just focus more on Him being a Savior. All of a sudden, there's a lot of pressure off. But you see, like these Hebrews, our faith is dependent upon the object of our faith. A sincere faith saves no one apart from an object that is capable of saving. An angel named Jesus does not save anyone. That's what this author is saying to the first century Jews. You know what he's saying to us? A gospel that is not exclusive is no gospel at all. A Jesus who is not Lord is not Savior either. You cannot divide the person of Jesus Christ. This is a warning shot over the bow, and he hasn't even gotten to the warning passages of saying, be very, very careful of worshiping your own comfort at the expense of the ontology of Jesus Christ, who he is. Finally, angels are created, but Jesus, Jesus is the ruling creator. Man, and, it, and it's, almost like, it, it's almost like the author just loads up and just wham, swings for the fences on this one, hits a home run. Verse 10, and you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. Circle that. And the heavens are the works of your hands. Circle that. They will perish, but you remain. They will all become old like a garment and a mantle. You will roll them up like a garment. They will also be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. He's quoting Psalm 102. He's saying, if you understand nothing else, the Redeemer is the creator. Angels are simply created. 
And He's not just the Creator. He is the ruling Creator. We see Psalm 110 again, which Christ Himself quotes. Verse 13, But to which of the angels has He ever said, Sit at my right hand, sit in the place of ruling authority, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? No created being would ever, ever sit at the right hand of God, much less be part of His counsel. You Jewish Christians, he's saying, you cannot, you cannot make less of Christ in order to take a little heat off you now. The author is saying, Metro Bible Church, you cannot reduce who Christ is. You cannot crave the creation over the Creator, lest you reduce who He is. The warning is there. Luke 9 sums it. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. Let me press this just a little bit more on the application here. What these Jewish believers were doing, wittingly or unwittingly, in lowering who Jesus is, or having their affections be diverted elsewhere, whatever the case is, it's the same, same sin. They're robbing God of His glory. Okay? The robbing God of His glory. That applies to us today. Anytime, anytime we compromise about who Jesus is or what He did, we're robbing God of the glory that is due Him. Now think about how devastating that is, especially when that robbing is from His own children. You feel the weight of it there? And so I started to think how I can apply this specifically to my life. Because if I just stop there, I'm not going to do anyone any good. And so I thought, how do I unwittingly rob God of His glory? How do I compromise who Jesus is or what He did? Now, you know me as a pastor. I'm not going to let it go by if, if, if someone says, well, yeah, you know, Jesus just died as a good example. I don't believe he actually paid for our sins. You think I'm going to be quiet? You better hope your pastor's not going to be quiet. So I'm like, I got that one marked down. Woohoo! Didn't rob God there. But what happens when I'm with a mixed group of friends and someone uses the name of Christ as a curse word? And I'm quiet. I don't expect that they're going to worship God and bring Him glory in that sense. But as an ambassador of Jesus Christ, why am I quiet? Maybe I don't want the heat. I really had to question myself here. I kept thinking of that same temptation. Hey, Brown, if you'll just turn down the volume on Jesus, you won't get so much pushback. We'll invite you back into our circle. 
Look, however this was being played out in the first century, we see it and see how it can be played out now. Anytime we rob God of our glory, we, anytime we miss an opportunity to stand up for the person and work of Jesus Christ, to lovingly correct someone on their thinking about who Jesus is and what he did for them, to even miss an opportunity to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying person, are we not being ashamed of him? I mean, we can stand over here and say, well, it's not like I'm trying to make him an angel, or I'm not trying to go back to Judaism. But if the root sin was I want to be liked and I'm willing to throw Jesus under the bus to be liked, then what's really the difference? I'm not saying we have to be obnoxious with unbelievers. Don't hear me saying that. I'm saying there's a very kind and gracious way to speak truth regarding who Jesus is. So, is this text about angels? text is about putting any creation in the same realm as the creator. The King of kings and the Lord of lords who saved us for eternal life. So Father, we ask that you would give us clarity on how we might follow the principle of exalting the name of Christ with all that we say and all that we do, and making sure that we keep creation in its proper perspective. Father, we pray that you would forgive us of our sins, of being ashamed. May we learn from this, and may our hearts overflow in worship. In Jesus' name we pray. 